I think storytelling is a great way for us to be honest about what these stories mean and what we're trying, what we're actually, why they're in our hearts and what we want to convey through them. So I think it's great. I think when, when parents or, you know, family, we tell each other stories, I think that's, it's magic. And that's how I am fully convinced that that is how Hinduism has, has survived. And I think will survive is, is these, these magic stories. brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Sheetal Shah talks with husband and wife duo, Ami and Amit Majmudar, about their latest works and how Hinduism is a foundation for both. Hope you enjoy it. Today, I am joined by the incredibly accomplished husband and wife team of Amit and Ami Majmudar. Amit Majmudar is a poet, novelist, essayist, and translator. His latest books include God Song, a verse translation of the Bhagavad Gita, and the poetry collection, What He Did in Solitary. Amit is the former first poet laureate of Ohio. He is also a diagnostic nuclear radiologist in Westerville, Ohio, where he lives with his wife and three children. Ami published her first book, Torchbearers, earlier this year. She's a graduate of UC Berkeley in English, and she became a high school English teacher. Her students quickly learned that she would drop everything for a story knowledge with it, which they tried to use to their advantage on exam days. She has recently started storytelling in both English and Gujarati on YouTube and Instagram to share ancient tales with torchbearers of all ages. So welcome to both of you. It was such a pleasure to read Torchbearers and Godsong. I'm kind of going to go back and forth between the two of you, but I really want to just start off because there's, both of them are absolutely fantastic. I read God Song first, and then I just finished up with Torchbearers. So Torchbearers is still going through my mind right now. <laughs> but I want to ask both of you, what was the inspiration? You know, what inspired you to pick up the pen or sit down at the laptop and, and start writing? Whoever wants to answer first, please feel free. Um, all right. Well, I, I will start. Thank you so much for having us both. This is um, an honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you for reading the book. And um, as you read it, you probably got the sense that, you know, it's this adventure fantasy. And I grew up, um, you know, obviously, you know, reading all the books, I think all of us grew up with the, the children's fantasy adventures. But it was, I was, you know, an adult when I read Harry Potter and Percy Jackson. And I remember thinking, you know, someone should really unlock the magic that we have in our ancient stories. It's there and it's this living tradition. And, um, you know, all these kids and adults are, you know, feeling these, these gods and even sometimes the demons and, you know, all these things every day. And so can I, can I bring that into um, a novel that has all these elements in it? So that was, I guess, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, I kind of tried to write the book that I've always wanted to read. And I think The Torchbearers um, hopefully does that. Yeah, and so for me, God Song, you know, it's a translation of the, uh, of the Gita. And, you know, I've read the Gita many times in a bunch of different translations. And I always felt that the Gita in the original is a poem. And whenever I read these translations, they struck me as almost 
sometimes some some cases they were almost uglier than prose and it would come off as this really really dense and wordy philosophical treatise of some sort and there was no no beauty to the language and no music to the language and then the more i accessed it both in recitation uh hearing uh, it recited and then also kind of engaging more with the the Sanskrit itself, uh, I realized that, you know, this is a poem, it's highly rhythmical, there's a reason they call it a song, and I thought that I would be able to bring something to it from my years of working with the language as a poet, and my poetry, my original poetry is very musically oriented, it's very uh, form-based, it has a lot of rhythm, a lot of rhyme and everything, so I thought, you know, I've honed those skills, those skills of verse craft for years now. And I can perhaps apply that to this text uh, and in, in doing so read it more closely than I've ever read it. And that's how God song came, came about. Now, did you grow up learning Sanskrit or was it something that you picked up later in life? No, I, we're not particularly, you know, super religious family growing up. Um, I, I have always been very interested in it. Um, per, probably anomalously relative to the rest of my uh, family growing up. Uh, Ami uh, and I really connected over that particular side of ourselves uh, when we met, uh, you know, at, in our late teens or, or 20, 20, 20. Uh, 20 or so. <laughs> um, and so, and, but, but uh, really uh, that was kind of like my thing for the longest time. Um, and then I, I pursued Sanskrit in conjunction with the Gita. So for me, the study of Sanskrit was very much just really the, the study of the Gita. And what I did is, I mean, I went into each and every word of the text and I studied the etymology of it, the, you know, what part of speech it was, what, it, what its um, related words were, what words in the Indo-European languages that are more familiar to English speakers relate directly to the original Sanskrit words. And because, you know, they all go back to Proto-Indo-European language. And so there's weird ways in which Greek and Latin correspond to Sanskrit words. It doesn't always, it's not always a one-to-one -one thing. So gyan in Sanskrit actually relates to the word gnostics or gnosis in Greek. And it has the same gna sound to it. But you can't use gnosis where you want to use knowledge because that's the word that we use now. Um, but all of that's related and, and these are very linguistically related. And so for me, it was something that I did <clears throat> particularly and specifically uh, in relationship to this project and for this project. And it made it, it was illuminating, I think, for me as a poet and as a Hindu to, to see just how connected and interconnected all these things are linguistically and, and metaphysically as well. I mean, do you have a Sanskrit background or did you guys learn side by side or that's not your thing? No, no, it, it is totally my thing. Um, I, I grew up um, in a family that, you know, I guess was and is very, very religious. And um, so uh, like Sanskrit prayer shlokas reciting the Gita was, uh, you know, very much part of my upbringing. Um, and then uh, and then I was fortunate to then... Um, take Sanskrit at, at UC Berkeley actually for uh, a couple of years. So, um, I don't, I mean, it's never complete. My, my dad, my dad's actually doing this entire Sanskrit course right now. And he's just like diving into this ocean. And, um, I, it's, I, I feel like that's hopefully something that we'll do in the future. 
but, um, but yeah, so my background in Sanskrit is I think more, um, I've always loved to, to recite and the meanings. And then with my background in Bharatanatyam, um, a lot of the um, sotras and um, songs and all that are in Sanskrit, you know, obviously that when you dance something, you really have to delve into the meaning. So I think all that has come together. And then watching Amit do this project and talking with him about it was um, illuminating for me as well. I learned a lot and he would wrestle with, okay, well, how, how should I say this? And we talked about it and that was, that was great. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Well, I was going to ask you guys, how has it been working together? You know, were you uh, talking about God's song every day uh, between the two of you and kind of figuring things out? Or was it a solo project and, you know, you reviewed it at the end? And likewise, for Torchbearers, was there any dialogue or was it like, please go away, I'm, I'm going to write? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think my, one of my fondest memories is me and Ami doing what we like to call a walk and plot. So we would always go on these walks, sometimes in a park, sometimes uh, on the track over at the, at the rec center. You know, every morning, you know, Ami would have these ideas and then she would kind of like bounce plot ideas off of me. And I think because, I mean, I didn't, they were always really great plot ideas, but I think because me and her are, you know, so culturally similar and so much on the same wavelength that I was a pretty good, I think, I like to think I was a kind of a sounding board for her ideas in their early phase. And I'd be able to be, and at the same time had, had the distance a little bit and I'd be able to be like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work or that's not so cool or make it cooler. <laughs> and that held true even for her chapter. So like on a chapter by chapter basis, if something got draggy, I'd be like, yeah, you need to make something blow up here or you need to make somebody, somebody get lost or you need to you need something to show up here. And, and sure enough, if you read Torchbearers, I think basically every chapter, something interesting happens, you know, yep. and, and, you know, and it was all her invention. So she would just come up with like, it, I'd be like, yeah, you need to make something happen here. And she would then just like, Five minutes later, be like, well, what if I have blah, 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 and I'd be like, yes, that'd be awesome. Do it. And so, so really my role was just to kind of, you know, goad her into really just bringing her invention out. Uh, and then she always rose to the, rose to my challenges for sure. Before you kind of talk through God's song, I actually want to get into a little bit of the crux of Torchbearers uh, because I did just finish it just last weekend, actually. Uh, so I was really curious, how did you come up with this idea of the churning of the ocean to be kind of the center point of the whole novel? I, I had written kind of this, I guess, old uh, version that I was quite, you know, thousands of words into. Um, quite a few years ago. And it was kind of, I guess, trudging along. It wasn't, you know, and my kids were young, the kids were younger then. So I didn't have as much time to write and all that. So, um, I think, but I always knew that the turning of the oceans is amazing story and this amazing myth and has so much potential. And so I think that, um, that kernel was, has been there for like, what, probably six years or so. And then I think the, um, the way it finally, uh, came together and the way it came into the modern day, I think became a tighter plot, a stronger plot. I think, um, probably in its later, uh, it's later versions. So, um, but I think this idea of, you know, poison being unleashed, uh, you know, these, these, uh, completely opposite forces having to compromise, uh, you know, fight, tug, you know, pull and tug and all that. And then, um, you know, how, um, you know, what it means if poison emerges and then how these cosmic beings help. And then I think the part that came at the very end, which I'm really proud of and happy with and my editor was, 
a big inspiration for that is, you know, what role then these humans, which are hopefully relatable humans, would take in this kind of uh, cosmic struggle? Well, speaking of the humans, I have to ask, are the three torchbearers based off of your children? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty close. <laughs> but I'll tell you the uncanny thing is that uh, when she was writing it, our daughter was uh, much younger. In, in, in the novel, she has the, the character of Samita be very much into animals and yeah. things like that. And then right when our daughter reached that age, she became... No, she still hasn't reached it, though. Or she still hasn't reached it. Yeah, yeah, but even so as she's reaching that age, yeah, yeah. she's uh, she's super in... She's, she's resembling the character. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very it's, it's amazing. And, and and she almost preempted it. You know, like initially yeah. where we saw, I saw her at age four. I'm like, oh, she'd probably be like this in five years. And then within two years, like she's she's doing all these things. So she, yeah, she's very precocious. Yes. So it's natural that she'll, she'll get there even earlier. Yes. But yeah, it's, it was very odd. an interesting development to see. Yeah, you know, very uncanny. I think mean, spooky, spooky. <laughs> <is a word. laughs> and then the boys probably, I don't think there was one-to-one necessarily. They, they do have probably characteristics of both. But um Probably one of the twins is much more into, I guess, you know, writing fiction and stories. So there's that, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting to see how that, and I, but I had to reassure them that it's not totally you, don't worry. So, <laughs> cause I think it's a lot of pressure to, you know, see, see yourself in a, in a, in a book. So oh, I'm assuming they've read it. Oh yes. Yes. <laughs> and they read the first version and then they read, uh, the, the day we, I had to wait a long time because it came out during lockdown. So when I had held it in my hand, you know, many, many months later, all three of them was so cute because we had a box and they just sat there. All three of them were like this, Aww. just with noses buried in it and reading it, which was awesome. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a page turner. I mean, once I started, I just kind of kept going and going and going. And I remember I was sitting here on a Saturday morning, just like glued to my computer reading it. My husband was like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, what I... I mean, there are many things that I loved about the book. I think my favorite thing is the way that you brought all of the deities and the gods to life. Uh, and I mean, Ganesh, definitely one of the highlights of the story. That's your favorite, yeah. was <laughs> my favorite character too. I mean, I think you did such a great job of bringing out his wit and his humor and kind of, you know, he had a couple of those like, corny jokes that the boys would roll their eyes at. It was like completely fantastic the way that you were able to modernize him and make him relatable to, you know, our current lives and, uh, you know, kids who are probably 11 or 12 or 13. The other character, the other part of the story that I thought was fantastic was during the war when Bhumi was there, who I think you also did a fantastic job of bringing her to life. But the line that stood out to me the most was, I think it was like during the final battle when Skanda told her, you know, stop giving, stop feeding that hungry because it's, it's a demonic trick. And Bhumi says, I can't, it's my nature to give. And I thought that was so poignant, right? She's like the ultimate mother because our nature is just to keep giving and giving. And, you know, if we could take that into a bigger context and just pause and think like, how much does Mother Earth actually give us and how much we keep taking and taking and taking and how long is that actually sustainable? Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think that in the environmental angle, um, you know, while I did not want to, um, yeah, obviously you don't want to preach about it necessarily, but I think for, um, as some, as a practicing Hindu, I think it is, um, 
like a daily reminder when you, you know, you sing a shloka about Mother Earth or something, this idea that um, she's not there for our use and that mindset of use versus veneration or respect um, and gratitude. I think that is something that hopefully the Hindu community can share with the world because I think that way of looking at the earth is very ancient, um, but very necessary right now. And so I really wanted to bring that aspect of her out and, and, you know, to, to, to kind of contrast the, yeah, the taking with, um, you know, her generosity. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. And it really, it really stood out to me. And of course, just before reading Torchbearers, I had read God song and I really loved your forward. Um, it, I thought it was really beautifully done and, and very honest and open. As I told you in our email exchange, I'm a huge fan of the Mahabharat. And I'm sure you might have heard of uh, Dr. Vishwa Adluri. He has done a ton of research on the Mahabharat. And so um, in, in your foreword, you hit upon this point that kind of relates to what Ami was just talking about, what we were talking about, about the environment that all life forms are equal. And I think you use the word identical. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go on to discuss this Christian notion that it's man's right to dominate other life and, and this world. And so I was actually listening to a lecture by Dr. Adluri on the Mahabharata and ecology. And he brings up very similar point. He said that the Hindu perspective is that man is not necessarily more special than any other being. Man, like all other beings and everything else here, is here to fulfill his or her dharma, you know, the same way that a plant or an animal is supposed to do. Whereas the Christian notion leads to the idea that man is the center of the universe, right? Man is here to dominate. So the two constructs lead to fundamentally different outlooks of how man interacts with, with the world. And I think that the interesting point that Vishwa pointed out was that one becomes the notion of my rights versus the other one is my duty or my obligation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Gita is all about the latter, right? It's right. what is my duty? What is my dharma? You know, and obviously there's dharma on so many different levels. Uh, but, you know, the world we seem to be living in right now is all about my rights, my individual right not to wear a mask right. versus, you know, my duty to cover up for the collective health. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Do you, what do you think? You know, I, I, I totally, I totally see. Um, it, I, I, I totally agree with your, with your perspective on that. And actually I was going to jump in when Ami finished talking about Bhumi, I was going to be like, and you know, the Advaitic uh, notions in the Gita mm -hmm. about the unity of all living beings perfectly feeds into current modern day environmentalism. And really, if you look at it, there's, there's basically three dominant ways of looking at nature in uh, on the earth today. And one could best be described as the Abrahamic notion. You referred to it as the Christian notion, but really it has its origins in Judaism, which then was transmitted down to Christianity and Islam. And that accounts for the majority of the human population. Then there's us, right? And, and we, you know, we have our own way of looking at it. The Buddhists then inherited it from the Hindus, which is that of, um, and really, I think it's been expressed in its purest form in the Upanishads and in the Gita, which is that there's, you know, all these different atmas, which are all, you know, elements or sort of manifestations or atomizations of Brahman. And that is 
the unity, which is that me, what's in me, what's in Ami, what's in you, what's in every, you know, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. That is the same thing. We're all on the same process to sort of reunite through Nirvan with, with the ultimate reality. And that is a very powerful idea. And that is a powerful idea that makes, you know, environmentalism, which is what we call environmentalism, it makes it almost like a logical conclusion. Like this is exactly how we should behave. And I think that third way of looking at the, at the universe is the scientific materialistic way in which contemporary science and the sort of post-Christian elements in the West look at the world. They do not have a spiritual underpinning for those conclusions. They can come to the conclusion that, hey, look, environmentalism is the right thing to do. They can come to the conclusion for, uh, for the universe being many, many millions of years old, the same way, those are the same conclusions that the ancient Vedic sages arrived at. But they had an entire spiritual infrastructure upholding those ideas and making those ideas, you know, the logical conclusion of your core beliefs. Whereas here in the West, in this post-Christian scientific materialistic world, they have these conclusions and they have quote data to back it up. And the other side has data on their side that they either fabricate or, you know, sometimes there's contradictory data. And, and so there's just this endless quarreling. Whereas for us, we have spiritual beliefs at our core that make this a foregone conclusion, you know, and that's, that's what you get. At least that's what I, one of the things I got out of my study of the Gita uh, in translating it which was that, look, you know, there's, there's unity here and there's a certain obligation that we have as human beings, as living things to other living things. And it's not about domination. It's not a power struggle. It's cooperation and it's, you know, stewardship, I think is the right word. Absolutely. I mean, I think you we're starting to see some of those trends happening in certain places. You know, this, this new um, move towards veganism, or plant-based diet, uh, you know, uh, it's it's picking up traction, not quite where it needs to be. But you know, there's a lot of people who one are, are kind of just doing it purely for health. But then I think there's a growing awareness of you know what you want to call it animal rights um, or what is being done to animals to the environment because of just simply our desire to you know eat meat at the scale that we're eating. Right. But, but you know, the, the, the disheartening thing, now I agree with you that that's the case, but the, the thing is like, you, you hear about it more and we are around people who, who are maybe thinking that way. We may read things that, you know, are thinking that way. But if you look at the globe, you know, it's not the case in China. It's not the case in the Islamic world. And it's not the case in about half of America, if not more than half of America, you know? So we're kind of in, we, we kind of have an echo chamber related to that. And if you look at the global trends, it doesn't look so great, you know, and uh, and and that's that's a sad that's a sad reality. But we have we have our work cut out for us, you know, and, and we have you know we have to be part of that change. And then you know you have to advocate for it. And I think Hindu American Foundation does a great job of that. And hopefully, in our own small way, writing our books and and doing what we can, we can we can you know be part of that turning tide. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to be positive. I'm like, come on. I, know, I, was, I was like, that's. I, I, I am, I, you know, she, she knows me very well. I am, I'm like the doomsayer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a big doomsayer about these things. Well, no, I mean, you know are right. I, <laughs> you're right about the echo chamber. I live in New York City. So right, it, it right, certainly right. is this bubble, um, you know, and, and I know that many parts of, of America are, are vastly different. Um, but it's, you know, it's one, 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 one uh, meal at a time. It's one person at a time. And it's, it's, I think it's a process. Like, you know, it'll, it'll happen. I have faith. Nobody <laughs> will realize what needs to happen for Bumi. So. <laughs> I need that. I want to transition back to torchbearers. Something positive here. Yes. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about my other favorite part of the story, which was the journey to Mount Kailash to find Shiva. Yeah. I thought your depiction of that was brilliant. Amazing. Where did you come up with this idea that the journey is going to be through the reflection? Oh gosh. That was I love really that. good story. <laughs> so that, that story is interesting because, um, when I was, when I was writing, um, so, you know, I, I told you earlier, like a lot of the pre thinking writing for torturers happened years ago, but then the actual book, I think finally that push that um, it probably gave me most more than anything else happened in, over the course of a few months. So every mo- early morning when Aishini was at school and then at night I'd be writing. So this happened like at two, I want to say one or two in the morning. And I was just Googling what um, geographically, how one would climb Kailasa. So I had no idea about any of this. I've never been there. Um, and then one of the things that came up repeatedly is that no one has ever successfully climbed this mountain. And so I read that, you know, people had tried and then obviously all Hindus and but this, you know, devout people just circ, uh, you know, circle it, uh, you know, do production. And then that uh, people who had tried it just because they could uh, were literally beaten back by the elements or their own health or something kind of mysterious. So, um, and then in looking at the map and the idea of Manasarovar and then the meaning of Manasarovar, which is the mind of the, the, the mind of the lake, um, or rather the mind in the lake, I guess, of Brahma. Um, that's when it all came together because I was kind of beating. I, I told them with them like they can't climb it. No one's climbed it. It's it's you know it, it's not possible. And that whole thing I think was I was really happy with. I think it was divine inspiration. I think it was very happy with the way it came out because she 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 kind of written herself into a like a into a into a dead end there yeah. because I think she'd written you'd written a chapter where they. I think where they climbed it, right? Yeah, no, I yeah, knew, she, I knew she, they were going to climb it. Yeah, she knew that she had to get them up there. <laughs> and then all of a sudden doing some research, it's kind of like no one's ever been up there. Right. It's like people have died. People <laughs> yeah. have died yeah. mysteriously yeah. trying to get up there. And so they, so she came up with this ingenious solution. It was just, and the minute she told me that, I was like, oh my God, that's ingenious. Just to, but I think so it's a testament to a lot of these young, I mean, obviously, you know, you would enjoy it and appreciate it, but it's a testament to all these young people who've read it, many of whom are not from uh, even a Hindu background, where they get that. And I was, you know, I was always nervous writing something like that because it's, it's very meta, like it's, it's yeah. very deep and it, but they, um, every kid so far has gotten, I've never had a, what are we trying to do there? Or maybe they wouldn't tell me, but, uh, but I, I, I get the sense that kids kind of intuitively get why that would work, which is kind of right. Funny. And she brings up a great point, which holds true of both God song and Torchbearers, which is that some of the biggest fans of, of both of our books are not even Hindu. And so it's really been heartening to see 
how these works can just transcend cultural gulfs, transcend the lack of a religious necessarily edu- religious background in our dharma or our tradition or anything. Um, so it has this universality to it, and I think part a lot of that has to do with Ami's really engaging storytelling. Um, but there's something to it as well that is just very, very uh, magnetic. I yeah, think. and I knew that if we could tap into that universality of these characters, these stories, then you know any anyone who either likes a good story or even just generally spiritual people, there's something in it for everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think at the crux of both of them. Um, you know, you bring it out through your story. And I mean, at the crux of, of any Gita is faith. So many times in Torchbearers, Ganesh had to tell Frame, like, you need faith, right? Yeah. Have yeah. faith in what you're doing. Have faith in me. And constantly reminding him of that. And I mean, obviously, you know, the Gita, ultimately, Krishna goes through his long explanation of all different ways. And then ultimately comes down to, just have faith in me, love me, and that's all you need, right? It's the crux of, of everything. Yeah. And I think that's what, uh, you know, Amit's, you know, uh, not that you need me to help plug you or anything, but I think one of the things I love most about what Amit has done is that that relationship between Arjun and Krishna, that intense friendship, is at the center of it, which I don't think always comes through in most translations. Um, yeah. This this deep love for the God and his best friend. I think that's, it, it, it makes it magical throughout. And it really, it really works. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. I mean, God's song flows yeah. very beautifully. Uh, so it's, uh, you kind of, sometimes you almost forget that you're reading something like a, like a religious text. It yeah. just, yeah. It's poetry. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really beautiful. Uh, is there, um, I mean, is there, was there, a particular verse or a particular chapter uh, as you were writing that was, you know, your absolute favorite that, you know, was like, this is the one. You know, I, I, I hesitate to answer that because, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you, you don't, you wouldn't want to pick among your, your children, but, uh, but I, I will say that, uh, you know, as you were asking that question, I kind of mentally went through in my head, you know, What's that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and really there is the, there is the, uh, just the the peak, the kind of the climax of the whole book, which is the Vishwarup Darshan. And that's where, you know, Krishna shows his expanse, his, uh, his universal form. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the obvious answer, I think. But I, I also have a fondness for the second, uh, chapter, which is one of the longest, not the longest. Um, the second one, is almost like a, it's almost like a, a whole Gita unto itself. And there's a, a way in which I, as I was translating it and revising it, I, I had a, a sense in my mind that, um, you know, in the context of the Mahabharata itself, where it falls in the story or in the epic, it's almost as though it could have ended right there. It could have ended at, at the end of the second Adhyay. And th- it has this, this entirety to it, this, this wholeness to it. And in that one, in that one, uh, you have these tonal changes as well, where he starts out saying, you know, don't be a coward. This is disgraceful. Uh, and, and, you know, he's like bucking him up like a, like a, like a drill sergeant kind of, (laughs) and then all of a sudden, 
he just zooms out and he's like, look, even if you die, you're not really going to die. And like, <laughs> and, then, and then he just goes through all this stuff, all this really philosophical stuff, you know? And, and I thought to myself that it's almost as though, you know, that was where Vyas was going. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, you know what, there's more here. And in fact, we can put everything in this one particular crucial situation. This one situation can, can have everything in it. And then after that, you know, there's all the sorts of beauties and, and, and insights that come afterwards. But yeah, those are the two really, really interesting things that I, I, I felt were, were kind of central to me. I, uh, so I, I walk my son to school every morning. And so one of the things that I, we do is he likes to hear stories. And so, as I've told you, the Mahabharata is like my ultimate. And so I pick little stories here and there from the Mahabharata and, and tell it to him along the way. And it's like a 15, 20 minute walk. So I can't get in, into too much detail. Uh, but this time, since we, I, I knew I was talking to you guys, I was like, let me see if I can start with like the premise of the Gita and, and the war. And so I was just explaining to him how there was this big war that was happening and how Arjun, you know, right at the, right before the war began, looked over and said, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Like, am I really going to fight my family for a kingdom? Like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this. So I'm explaining this to my son and I'm, you know, getting into just a little bit about how Krishna's like, you know, man up, come on. Uh, and then slowly trying to philosophy, but he's five. So, you know, um, but you know, his biggest concern, like when I paused was, oh, did Arjun fight mom? Oh, it's so like he got up right so even you know even he understood like without me having to go through it all how important it was for Arjun to to get up and and fight for dharma so it's just it's you know I'm sure I could learn a lot from you Ami in terms of how to tell better stories but it's kind of fun to teach kids at at this age because they just absorb it all and they're so interested and they just want to know more and more and they don't sit there and question you like now, did this really happen? You know, was there really a God that was like a monkey? Like, did this all, like, was this true? You know, he just absorbs it. And yes, that, really happens, that happens at 12. That my, old, my older ones are now, you know, we're getting, well, we get into good discussions. I think storytelling is a great way for us to be honest about what these stories mean and what we're trying, what we're actually, why they're in our hearts and what we want to convey through them. So I think it's great. I think when, when, parents or, you know, family, we tell each other stories. I think that's, it's magic. And that's how I am fully convinced that that is how Hinduism has, has survived. And I think will survive. It's, is these, these magic stories. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the questions start earlier than 12. My nieces are nine. And I remember when they were seven or eight, I was telling them just a very general story of, of the Ramayana. And they were looking at me like, this did not happen. <laughs> Right. It's a, that's a, those are those are tough things to, to navigate. And a lot of times, Omid and I remind each other and the kids that, you know, we don't have to know exactly how it happened, but we can live in that world of the story and enjoy everything. You know, it doesn't make it unreal, um, you know, just, you know, not having the exact historical science, you know, all figured out yet. <laughs> right. But, but also, uh, I think, you know, the, the muse of history and the muse of epic poetry are two distinct muses. Yeah. And, and I think that, as Hindus, we are participants and torchbearers of the last living mythological religion on the face of the earth. This is how the way we are and the way we tell stories, the kind of stories we tell, that used to be universal. 
That used to be the case. That used to be how uh, people in Africa, people in North America, South America, wherever, everywhere, basically, including Europe. That is how religion was expressed and conveyed and how religious ideas were embodied in narratives. And this whole idea that, oh, there's historical truth and then there's myth and then myth is suddenly a bad thing or a false thing. That's a, that's a contemporary, uh, you know, falsification of reality, first of all. Um, and it also belies the fact that, or rather ignores the fact that even history, even contemporary con- current events have myth-making baked into them. And that's something you see in how people talk about their favorite political figures. <laughs> that's in how people, you know, construct narratives in the media, all of that is myth-making and it's baked in, but they don't own it. They claim that they're telling you objective truth. <laughs> when I'm telling you a story about a monkey who jumps from India to Lanka, you know that I'm, quote, not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you necessarily think that that's exactly what happened, but that has some, that has power and it has meaning and it, and it tells you, you know, before that, Hanuman's this little, little tiny monkey. And then Bear comes and tells him, man, you can do this. And then Hanuman swells up and, you know, he's like, you know what? I am going to do this. And this is where the meaning is. And that's where the truth is. And that's where the reality is. That's where it's located. It's located in the story. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different way of looking at storytelling, a whole different way of looking at religion, um, which we are torchbearers of and we need to own it, you know? And so when, when I think the best answer to this question of did that really happen is like, it doesn't matter if it really happened. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not the way to look at this. That's not the way to experience this story, you know? And that's what I, and that's what I say sometimes, you know, to the kids. So I have to try that one on my niece. See if, see if that works. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, like children, they all love the stories, right? right. They love to hear them. And, and all, everything in, in any one of these epics, there is something to be learned from every moment. Right. Uh, you know, I, one of the things we're, we're trying to teach my son is that in, in all of these epics, there's good and bad, but bad is not purely bad, right? There is an element of good in there. You know, whether you're talking about Ravana, right? How did he become so powerful, right? There was an element of good that led up to becoming this powerful. Even if you're talking about, you know, because I, I, we're going to, I'm going to go to the Mahabharata in a second, but, you know, if you're talking about the the Garavas, Duryodhan, there was still an element of good in there, right? Nobody is purely good, purely bad. Trying to get our kids to, you know, not see good, bad, stark, black, white. Um, it's so important, particularly in this day and age where, you know, with, with so many of these movements, it's like either you agree with me or you don't. Like there's no room for discussion or dialogue. And so I think it's important in all of these stories to point out how complex all of these figures are. I totally agree. And, you know, at the end, Duryodhan is, you know, you, when, when Yudhishthira goes up to heaven at the end of the Mahabharata, you know, he is shown Duryodhan in, in heaven. And that is a very important point. And it's also a very important point at the end of the, after the war, Vyasa goes under the Ganga and he gives this vision of, of, of all of the slain of the, of the war. And he even gives Dhritarashtra divine sight so that he can for once in his life see. And the survivors of the war are on the, are on the banks of the Ganga. And 
Vyasa sort of projects this holographic sort of mystical imagery of all of the slain, and they are all uh, briefly and transiently just for one night sort of resurrected in this in this uh, form, and they are free of their anger, free of their resentment, free of their animosity and their aggression, and they're all friends, Bandavas, Goravas, all the people who kill each other. They're all reconciled. It's the vision of the sons, right? And, and this is part and parcel of what we talked about earlier, about the nature of you know, all life being engaged in the same process, the same process of purification and unification with the divine, and that everyone is at their nature you know, divine. And it's very hard to cast anyone into outer darkness, to demonize anybody. Um, the way, you know, into, you know, infidel or, or unbeliever or, you know, you know, bigots or this or that, you suddenly realize that, look, there's more to humans than that. Yeah. And I think that Ami does a great job of that in Torchbearers too, because, you know, you, you, even those demons, you know, they, they want, you know, they want immortality the same as the gods do. Yeah, I think we're, I, I think as Hindus, we tend or it's great if we remember that we're pretty comfortable with ambiguity and gray area yeah. and not, uh, you know, not, not entirely good evil, you know, and, and even we have gods that are scary and, uh, you know, can go, can go overboard as well. And, you know, we have demons with, with redeeming characteristics. And that's interesting. I think as long as the overall idea of karma, that which uplifts and sustains is remembered, then, you know, then we don't kind of get confused within that, uh, within that tradition and within that story. So before we wrap it up, I want to find out what's next. I know, Amit, you mentioned that you are working on a translation of, or a retelling, retelling yeah. of, of the Mahabharata. Yeah. Uh, how's, how's that going? What, I mean, that's a massive project. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I, I've been kind of hitting that pretty hard, actually. I've been, I've been very uh, ma- maniacal about it. And Ami gets to read each chapter as I knock it off. So <laughs> it's good. And I am, I am a very uh, kind of harsh critic when it, I'm, I, 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 as you do, I adore the Mahabharata, grew up reading it, stories, everything. So when he's like, I'm going to do it my own way, I'm like, oh, really? And I should have more faith because he's phenomenal. But when he, I mean, when he brought that to life, I mean, each chapter, even for someone who knows the story, I mean, it, it is, it is just amazing, illuminating every time. And his ability to bring out that uh, multifaceted nature of each character is is remarkable. So I can't wait for the world to get to read it. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it. I can't yeah. wait. When uh, when do we anticipate? Are we talking? Oh, it's in two parts. So there's the first part is the Book of Vows, and that's up to the dice game. That's the include up to including the dice game, and that is almost done. Actually, yeah. I don't have that much longer before that's okay. done, and then after that's the, you know, the second book, which is the book of killings. Ah. There's a whole lot of killing that happens <laughs> after, <laughs> after that happens. I'm going to go from to massive Akshohini's getting shredded. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Awesome. He's got a wonderful project. Well, I was going to ask Ami because the way that Torchbearers ended sounded like maybe there might be a sequel or there might be a part two. Yeah. I definitely want to keep the door open um, on that. What I don't want to do is rush it. Um, I don't want, I mean, this came about, I felt so naturally and organically eventually when it was meant to happen. Um, 
that I don't want to write a sequel for the sake of it. So um, I'm, I'm kind of waiting and seeing and letting letting that come to me, hopefully in its, in its right time. Uh, in the meantime, I'm working on something not for kids. Um, I guess it's kind of, um, how do I put it? Probably the, the, in, a, in a nutshell, it's Pride and Prejudice um, meets, um, I guess, the, the British, indep- the, the, the Indian independence movement. Interesting. So it play, plays with, with that. Two, two things I, I, I love a lot. And uh, so that's been an interesting, I've, I wrote it and then I'm kind of rewriting it a little differently. So okay. we'll see where that goes. That's my new project right now. Wow. I'm looking forward to reading that. That sounds really um, fascinating and very different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens with that. So Amazing. Well, I look forward to both the Mahabharat and this schmedley that's coming out. Well, thank you both for joining me this morning. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I loved reading both of your books. And, um, you know, please stay in touch. Let us know what's, uh, what's coming down the pipeline. And, you know, we'd love to have you back on the podcast when, when uh, the Mahabharata comes out and when your book comes out. Love to talk about it again. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.